come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode number 73 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be my Odyssey Through the Ones, episode number two for this. And I have featured reviews of Bloody Hell, which is getting its wide release in 2021. Now, that is a kind of slasherist type film that has a little bit different twist on what they're doing there. And then the other movie I have from 1931 is going to be Murder by the Clock, which this is kind of an earlier murder mystery. So like I said, I believe on the last episode, they're not necessarily paired up as well as I would like, but I think it does have an interesting kind of duality with these two different types of films and, you know, being 90 years apart from their releases. And then I also have mini reviews of I See You, Habitual, The Last Man on Earth, and then Game of Death. Now, this is the one that was made in 2017, but kind of got its wider release, and now it's on Shudder. It's got a wide release uh, as of last year, on VOD, that is. So that's all I really kind of have there that I wanted to get you up to speed with. I don't really think there's anything else I need to delve into before I, you know, start getting into everything. So what I'm going to do is kick you over to a musical break before I get into those mini-reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Muistuna Karjalamaa, mutta vieläkin syömässä soi nahtaa Kun soittajan sormista kuulassa Säkkijärven polkkaa Se polkka taas menneitä mieleen tuo Ja se autoa kaivota rintaan luo Ei soittaja haitarin soida suo Säkkijärven polkkaa Nuoren ja vanhan se tanssiin vie Ei sille polkalle vertailien Sen kanssa on vaikka mieron tie Säkkijärven polkkaa Siinä on lippuatuslaineitten Siinä on huojunta honkien Karjala soi kaikki tietää sen Säkkijärven polkka Tule, tule, 
tyttöni kanssani tanssi, kun polkkani herkäsi helkähtää. Hoi hevosurko ja hammasta purkoon, kun silloin ihmeesi suurempi pää. Tule, tule tyttöni kanssani tanssiin, niin meillä on riemuja sovinänsä. Säkki järvi, se meiltä on pois, mutta jäi toki sentään polkka. Kun rakkaimmat rannat on jäänettään, niin vieraisa kulkija lohdunsa, kun kuuntelee soittoa kaihoisa. Säkki järven polkka, se polkka on vain, mutta sellainen, että tielle se johtavi muistojen on sointuna Karjalan kaunoisen Säkkijärven polkka. Nuoren ja vanhan se tanssiin vie, ei sille polkalle vertaalia. Sen kanssa on vaikka mieron tie. Säkkijärven polkka, siinä on lippuotulaineiden. Siinä on huojonta honkien, Karjala soi kaikki tietää sen. Säkkijärven polkka. Tule tyttöny kanssani tanssi, kun polkkani herkäsi helkähtää. Voi hevosurko ja hammasta purkoon, kun silloin ihmesi suurempi pää. Tule, tule tyttöny kanssani tanssi, niin meillä on riemuja suvinänsä. Säkki järvi, se meiltä on pois, mutta jäi toki sentään polkka. Kun rakkaimmat rannat on jääneet niin vieraissa kulkija lohkunsa. Kun kuuntelee soittoa kaihoisa, säkki järven polkka. Se polkka on vain, mutta sellainen, että tielle se johtavi muistojen on sointuna and for my first mini review of this week is going to be I See You. This is from 2019. This is directed by Adam Randall. It was written by Devin Gray. It stars Helen Hunt, John Tenney, and Owen Teague. This is a crime drama horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a... 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being strange occurrences plague a small-town detective and his family as he investigates the disappearance of a young boy. Now, this is a movie that I remember hearing getting some buzz a couple of years ago. I believe it came out late in 2019, and I didn't really start hearing about it until just into 2020. It was a movie that Jamie and I both thought sounded good, so we added it to a list to check out when we couldn't think of anything to watch. This is what we finally decided on. Now, where I want to start here is that I heard a lot of people talking about this movie and questioning if it was horror or not. This is listed on IMDb as horror, so that made me want to watch this even more. And having now seen it, I can see why this is in question. The first part, there really is a horror vibe to it, as it does seem like something supernatural could be going on here. It made me wonder if this was going to be ghosts or even aliens. Then the second half of it shows that everything we're seeing here is grounded in reality. Now that's all I want to say, as I will include it, you know, in this horror movie research that I've been doing. Now this is a hard one to talk about without going into spoilers. I'm going to delve into the setup and probably will briefly cover some things in the second half of this as well. Now we get a good setup here. Jackie, who is Helen Hunt, seems like a good mother who has just made a horrible mistake by cheating on her husband. She is from money and he is not. Now Greg, who is portrayed by Tenny, and then her son of Connor, who is portrayed by Judah Lewis, are mad at her for what she's done. Now, she is trying to make things right. Greg is a detective, so I know that there are some broken parts to him as well. Now, this works as it seems to take a toll on people. And then outside of that, they seem like a good family and pretty normal from the outside. I love the subtle things that happen throughout this first part. As things go missing in the house, sometimes people notice them, and then there are other times where just us as the audience do. This is unnerving to me, as this is one of my greatest fears. The supernatural explanations are actually less scary than what the truth of what is actually happening here. There was even a term that I didn't know about until 
it was happening here in this movie. I'm not going to use it here as I do feel like that would be a spoiler for those that know what it means. Now, the second half, things go wild. We are following mostly Mindy, who is portrayed by Lib Bearer, and then Alec, who is Teague, as our main characters for that part of it. What I like with this is that we're actually seeing most of the events from the first part from a different angle. I also really like that this second part fills in not only gaps, but it also takes little things and creates bridges from the first part into what we get here for the conclusion. Now, I did predict some of this stuff, and I do have to admit that. Now, this doesn't ruin the movie for me, though. The story is so well-crafted that I dug what it was doing. This definitely falls into the camp where I need to re-watch this just to see if I might have missed out on some other things, if there's those little parts might even piece together more for me as well. Now, the story, what we get here, is good, but I don't know if it works as well without the acting to accompany it. I was shocked to see that Hunt was in this movie as our lead. She is someone who I actually really liked as a kid, and she's also had some plastic surgery done that bothered me. But I don't really want to harp on that too much here, as I know a lot of other people have in other reviews that I've listened to. Now, her performance works here. She's a doctor and knows that she's messed up. With things that she has taught, she is swallowing her pride to make things better and taking verbal abuse from her family in the process. She does disappear, though, in the second half of this movie, which is interesting. Her husband in the movie is Tenny, and I think he's really good here. We get to see him as a victim of his wife's cheating. He is important in his role with the case as well. Now, things get quite interesting with him, and I think he does well here. Teague is unhinged from the moment we meet him, and I really like what we learn about him as well. It makes sense in the end. Now, Lewis is solid as their angst-ridden teen. He isn't dealing well with what is happening, and I found his portrayal, that, and it worked. Bear and the rest of the cast really round this out for what was needed, and I think the acting is quite strong here across the board. Now, something else that is strong in this movie was the soundtrack. I noticed it from the beginning, and Jamie even pointed it out. It really helps to enhance the creepy vibes that the movie is going for, and I'd say that at times it really ramps it up as well. I would be interested in seeing if this soundtrack is one that I could listen to while, you know, writing, to be honest, and one that I would like to have just to have, you know, for myself as well, because I do really enjoy movie soundtracks. And the last thing I want to go over here would be the cinematography and the effects. The first part here, the cinematography is really good. The house they're using helps. We get some wide shots where the whole frame is used, and there are things that we can see in the background as it goes on. What I like here is, though, at first, there isn't anything in the background, and it is when the story develops that things start to happen there. I really was impressed with that, and then for the latter, we don't really get a lot in the way of effects, and it also doesn't necessarily need them. So I would say that this all kind of works here, and I have no issues. So in conclusion, I really like this movie. It really seems like two different types that mesh together so well to tell this story. What I think works even more here is that it is dealing with the duality of characters on top of that. People that we think are villainous or even heroes might not be who they seem in the end. The good acting here really helps with this as well as building to what we get in the end. The soundtrack and the cinematography are great while the effects work here as well. I would say that this is a really good film bordering on great. It isn't the most original but I think how they're telling the story here is. This is one that I'm excited to revisit as well, just as I've said earlier, to see what I might have missed and what how that could piece things together even more for me. So my rating after this initial viewing of I See You is a 9 out of 10. And then the second movie that I watched for this week is Habitual. This is from 2019, but I believe it got its wide release last year. Now, this is written and directed by Johnny Hickey. It stars Stanley Bruno, Emily Fitzpatrick, and Jay Lee Hickey. And it should also point out here that it features Chris C.T. Torembello. And then this is a horror film that is from the United States. 
It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a doesn't have enough ratings yet on Letterboxd, but I'd say it's probably hovering around like a two, two and a half stars at the moment. With our synopsis here is a fistful of drug popping ravers and an insane mental patient take a hell bent trip to an underground rave party called The Habit that is being held in an abandoned lunatic asylum in Salem, Massachusetts. Now, this is a movie that got onto my radar when the writer-director of Hickey hit me up on my Instagram page for a journey with a cinephile, a horror movie podcast. I believe this movie, as I said, was released in 2020, and I wanted to see it then, but the price tag was a bit high. I ended up seeing this as I rented it on Amazon Prime as I wanted to support him and still, you know, send some money his way that I can, especially since he's an independent filmmaker. Now, I did see his feature film debut. That one wasn't really horror in my opinion, but I enjoyed that. And then figuring out this movie was more into the genre, it was more up my alley and I really wanted to see this as well. Now, where I want to start with kind of my thoughts here is that I want to commend Hickey. This movie looks really good. I normally start with, you know, breaking down the story, but I love the location that was used here. It is creepy and fits the vibe that they're going for. I could see a rave like this being held in a place like we get here. I've lived a good portion of my life growing up in the country, so seeing a party being held like this brings back nostalgia. We didn't have abandoned mental hospitals, but we did have barns and backfields where we never really had to worry about getting busted by the cops, so there is that. And this movie is just shot very well. Now the next would be the parts of the story itself that I like. I love the idea of this entity that we're getting here called The Blight. And it's pretty cool to me. I love the design by making it look like a plague doctor from the past. The movie is interesting in giving us the backstory through a character looking up the place online and then stumbling onto, you know, the history. It also works for me that the character of Simon, who is portrayed by Hickey himself, gives us backstory as well. Now, he's in a mental hospital at the time, or at least he's in the psych ward of, of a normal hospital. So he's crazy, so we can't necessarily believe him as an unreliable narrator, so that makes it even better for me. Now, he is right about some of the things that he is saying. Now, this character of Simon, though, is problematic for me. I don't think he fits into the story that we are getting for the most part of this movie. I think the movie also goes a little bit heavy-handed in its anti-drug message. I agree that it's a problem, and I'm glad that this movie is doing what it can to bring more light to it, but I just wish they could have been a bit more subtle for it to work better. I enjoy the allegory of what we're seeing as to what the reality is. It comes back to the fact, though, that I don't understand how this Simon story arc fits into what we're getting, or even the kind of the story arc that we have there, so that kind of becomes problematic. Now, since I've gone on about the look of the creature itself, I want to go into the effects. I won't spoil who plays the Blight, but I think it's smart. They do a great job with making this person look creepy, and there is some good use of blood, including the color and consistency. I love the contacts that were used to make the eyes glow. There are some good practical effects as for some of the attack scenes that I really do enjoy as well. Now, what I do have an issue with here, though, would be some of the CGI. We don't get a lot, so that is good, but there is some blood splatter that just doesn't look great. Then to move this over to back to some positives, I like the cinematography to stimulate what the drug is making people see. Now, I've never used drugs like this, but it does make me feel like this is what I would be seeing if I did. Now, next, I want to shift this over to the acting, and I'd say for the most part, it's solid. I feel like the actor of... Stanley Bruno is really this Blake character that we get. It is funny to see Emily Fitzpatrick, as I'm pretty sure she's from the real world on MTV. I like the character she is playing, and we do get to see her in her underwear, so if you're curious to see that. Now, another real world alum is Tamborello. 
I'm a big fan of CT. So he's probably also the best performance in this movie, in my opinion. Johnny Hickey does well as his crazy guy. Aside from that, I think everyone else is fine. The women are pretty attractive, and we get to see them in different states of undress. There isn't really any nudity, though, so just as a warning, but... You know, we do get to see these attractive women in some, you know, stressful situations. And really the last thing I want to go over would be the sound design and soundtrack. The former, I think, does some good things with it. I like slowing down the speech or distorting it when people are high. It makes me think this is what it would be like to hear different things while you're under these drugs. Aside from that, I think the music works and it fits for what we're seeing from the attack scenes to the rave. So then in conclusion here, I think this is a well-made movie for an independent film. There is a good message here, and I think it is creative in its use of allegory. I just think that there are some parts that don't fit into what they're doing here, aside from giving us, you know, backstory. The movie does go a bit too heavy-handed for me with its message. The acting works for what was needed. The practical effects were all good, but I did have some issues with some of the CGI. I would also commend the cinematography, soundtrack, and sound design as well. So I would say that this is an above-average movie in my opinion. I'd recommend giving it a viewing if what I've said here you know, works for you, as I do think this is worth giving a viewing to. So my rating here for Habitual is a 6.5 out of 10. And for my next mini-review that I have for you is The Last Man on Earth from 1964. This was directed by Sidney Selko, and it looks like the Italian prints of this were directed by Ubaldo Ragona. And then the screenplay for the English version was co-written between Richard Matheson, who did it as Logan Swanson. And then he also co-wrote this with William F. Leicester. And then this is from the novel that Matheson also wrote. And then the Italian screenplay was co-written between Furio M. Monti and Ubaldo Ragona. Now this stars Vincent Price, Franca Vettonia, and Emma Denali. This is a drama horror sci-fi film that is a co-production between italy and the united states which makes sense for all the italian names that were you know behind the scenes on this and then this is rated as a 6.9 on imdb nice and a 3.3 on letterboxd with our synopsis here being when a disease turns all of humanity into the living dead the last man on earth becomes a reluctant vampire hunter now this is a movie that was interesting to me I originally saw another adaptation of the story growing up in the Omega Man before ever seeing this one. And it wasn't until college that I finally got around to checking it out. Part of the reason was that I wasn't the biggest fan of black and white movies until around that time as I finally started to break down after I took some history of cinema classes and that really started to expand my horizons. I didn't even realize this was based on the novel from Matheson until much later after that as well. Now where I want to delve into here first would be the concept of this movie. After watching it this time, what I find interesting is that Matheson took a scientific approach to vampires. I did see an interview with him about the idea for the movie, and that is what he actually stated. He incorporated the lore that we you know, got to know from the classic era of Dracula. The only difference here is that these creatures do not have the ability to control humans, and they're a lot more like the undead. It also makes sense that Night of the Living Dead would borrow from this movie in kind of that siege narrative and how the zombies kind of act to these vampires here. Now, going back to basing this in reality, it is interesting to watch the movie during a pandemic. We are seeing one of the more deadly viruses that are ravaging the United States and the world. Now, not to the extent that we get in this movie, but it does bring up a sense of eerie realism regardless. It is quite interesting that this is almost 60 years old now and how close we could be to having a more catastrophic event. 
Now, before I move from this, I do want to comment that one of the best parts of the movie is the feel of the world itself. I'd say for about 45 minutes of it, we're just following Robert, who is, in this case, is Vincent Price, when he is all alone. The only times he has interactions with others is when he's attacked at night. And there's a great isolated feel that really works for me. I have to give credit to the cinematography, which also does help capture this feel on top of that. Since this is mostly a character study of Robert, Price is such a perfect person to be cast here. He's such a great actor. Now, I don't think this is his best performance, but there are also no issues with what he's doing here. And then Batonia is Ruth Collins here. She really doesn't show up until late in the movie as the first live woman he encounters since everything has fallen. She is harboring an interesting secret that leads us to the conclusion. Daniela is solid as Virginia, who is Dr. Morgan's wife. We see her through flashbacks, which help to explain Robert. I'd say that the best performance, aside from Price, though, is one that is done by Giacomo Rossi Stewart, who is playing the character of Ben Cortman. I love how what he has established about him and then the reveal as to why he's targeting Robert. I think Stewart does a solid job here. I would say that the rest of the cast also rounds us out for what was needed. So the next I want to take this would be to the soundtrack. I was paying attention to the credits during this viewing and I realized that this was a co-production with Italy. That makes a lot of sense with the soundtrack helps in giving a creepy vibe. I'm a big fan of movies from this country during the era and a lot of it is because of how well the music they have paired up with it. It really does capture what they're going for and it enhances it in my opinion. Aside from that, I want to commend the sound design as well. The dubbing is off slightly, but hearing the vampires banging on the outside of the house, especially hearing Ben calling out for Robert, really helps with that eerie vibe as well. And really the last thing I would want to go over here would be the effects. This movie doesn't really have a lot and it doesn't go too far. It would actually probably be a help if it could have went a bit farther than what they did, but I'm not going to hold that against the movie for when it came out. Now the vampires look more like zombies and that is really how they attack to an extent. They are able to talk and reason, but Robert points out that not much more than animals would. I would have to say this is fine here for what they give us. And I mean, I should also point out Night of the Living Dead hasn't come out yet. It would be influenced by this movie, so it was like another five years for that. So it does kind of make sense, again, that that movie would be borrowing from this. Then in conclusion, this is a movie that I saw after another adaptation of it. Having read the book, this is probably the most faithful take on it despite the changes that are made. Price is a solid job here as Robert. It is interesting character study on this man being isolated and trying to maintain as normal a life as he can. He is trying to find purpose. The realistic and scientific take on the vampires is interesting. I really dig the soundtrack, sound design works, and the effects are lacking a bit, but not enough to ruin it. For me, this is an above average movie. There are just some flaws that I can't take it any higher. So my rating here for The Last Man on Earth is a 7.5 out of 10. And the last mini review that I have for you this week is going to be Game of Death from 2017. This was co-directed between Sebastian Landry and Lawrence Morris Legace. It looks like it was adapted by Philip Kalen Haju. And then the screenplay was also co-written amongst Eduardo H. Bond, Sebastian Landry, and Lawrence Morris Legace. This stars Sam early victoria diamond and amelia hellman this is a horror thriller that is from a co-production of france canada and the united states it is currently sitting on a 5.4 on imdb and a 2.6 on letterboxd with our synopsis here is 
Kill or be killed is the golden rule of Game of Death. Sucks for seven millennials who ignored that rule. Now each one's head will explode unless they kill someone. Will they turn on each other or let the game win? Now this is a movie that I actually heard about a few years ago when it was making its festival rounds. I wanted to see it, but from everything that I was gathering, it was tough going finding distribution. I know Mark Nato talked about this last year when it hit VOD as one of his Rotten Roundtable selections, so I knew that I was finally going to get the chance and that I could finally see it. I was glad that it was picked up by Shudder, whereas actually I finally watched this one, you know, with my subscription there. I'm not necessarily sure how this was going to be, despite being, you know, wanting to see this one. It is better than I was expecting. That isn't to say that it isn't problematic still. To start with the positives, I love the opening sequence with this old school looking video game. When I started to be a gamer, this was the era that actually started. I have a soft spot still for games like this. So it's really cool montage in the middle where they incorporate this along with other types of animation that worked for me as well. It is safe to say I really dig the premise of this movie as we kind of have a feel of a game like Jumanji. It's just more of an adult version with a simpler concept in theory of this, you know, kill or be killed. Now to get into what I find problematic, I don't like any of the characters. Tom is a psychopath, which makes a lot of sense and actually works for me. We aren't actually supposed to like him in my opinion. Beth and him have a weird relationship, which I also think works for what the movie needs. Ashley and Tyler start off as typical millennials, but they have this change about halfway through the movie. Then there's also Marianne and Kenny. They seem like nice people. And then Matt is really the only one who doesn't have any redemption in my eyes. And that's for an interesting reason in the movie. Now, regardless, though, I don't care about any of them in the end. And it seems like this movie wants us to feel for Ashley and Tyler. But the problem, as I was trying to say here, is that the group is just so kind of annoying in their ways that it doesn't ever happen for me. Now, going along with this idea, while seeing the build-up to this movie, I was thinking what I would do. My idea was a retirement home. And I know how bad as it sounds, but if I decided if I'm going to try to survive this game where I have to kill X amount of people, I would go somewhere like that. This movie doesn't do that, but it does go somewhere similar. The logic that Tom uses makes sense, and there is a character they encounter that makes me feel horrible. This does build tension for me in an odd way, and it was decently effective, I'm going to be honest. Now, where I think I'll go next would be the acting. I've already started to lay out my thoughts on the characters. I think that the acting is actually solid. Early fits of this character of Tom, and I believe that he could be him. Same could be said for Diamond. And then Hellman, Sidon, Baez, Serrano, and Valeris are all much of the same for me. I really had no issues with the acting. I think that it's believable for who they are, plus the rest of the cast that rounded this movie out for what was needed, in my opinion. Next, I would go to the effects. This is something that I was pretty impressed with what they went practical for a lot of it. I think that the blood has a good color and consistency. There's a bit of CGI that comes with some of the blood splatter. Not enough to ruin this movie, but I did notice it. The cinematography was also good, and I will give credit once more to the animated sequence that we get here. I love the few styles that are blended together, and it works well, in my opinion, visually. So the last thing would be the soundtrack. I really enjoyed what they were doing here. I thought it fit for the scenes, especially in helping to ramp up the tension. This would be another one that I'm going to see if I can pick up. The party sequences in it are fine, but it is mostly due during the climax. Now, there's also this French song that is used. At first, it didn't fit. But seeing that this is a co-production with France, that makes a lot of sense as to why it is here. I thought this works well in this movie when it needed. Now, in conclusion, I think this movie has an interesting concept. It isn't completely original, but I do think that the movie does well in doing something a bit different with it. Setting it with characters 
that we have, I think that helps. Many of them don't have any redeemable qualities, and for ones that do, we don't get that until much later in the movie. I think this is all a bit problematic for me, though. The acting is good from aside from that. I would have a slight issue with some of the CGI. The practical effects are good along with the soundtrack. So with what I had said, I rate this as an above-average movie as well. Not great, but I think if you have Shudder, it is worth a viewing at least once, especially if you like the premise. So my rating here for Game of Death is a 7 out of 10. So that's all I have for mini-reviews for you at this time. So what I'm going to do is kick you over to the first trailer for my first featured review. Everyone has a past. I know I do. What? Let's just say... Everybody down on the ground! Go, go, go. I'm not boring. Hey, it's you! I'm not famous. Rex. Rex. Rex Cohen. At least, not on purpose. I talk to myself. How much do you think they get for these, by the way? <laughs> and I've been known to overreact. <laughs> so, trying to escape my hell of a past only landed me somewhere much, much, much worse. future I've got one night to escape it's a family these total psychos for my first feature review on this episode is going to be bloody hell this is technically from 2020 but it got its wide release here in 2021 this is directed by alistair guyerson and it was written by robert benjamin it stars ben o'toole meg frazier and carolyn craig while also featuring matthew sunderland travis jeffrey jack finsterer david hill joshua brennan ashley lulbeck Sophia Emerson Bain, Ryan Tarrin, Scott George, Daniel Weaver, Brad McMurray, and Sean Lynch. This is a action horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production between Australia and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 .6 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, 
with our synopsis here being a man with a mysterious past flees the country to escape his own personal hell only to arrive somewhere much much worse now this is a movie that i didn't really know a whole lot about but i first heard about it when mark nato over on social media it was one of the better ones that he said he watched in january so i put it on a list to check out now i needed something to pair this up here as part of my odyssey through the ones I don't necessarily think I paired up great as I haven't watched the 1931 film yet, but I just wanted to see this one. I thought it was much better than some of the other ones I was looking at, so here we are. But then before I get into this movie here, I do kind of want to go into some featured notes that I have. Our director of Guyerson has helmed seven films. Of them, this is the only one that is a horror film. He did direct Sanctum, which I saw right after college and enjoyed. So that and this movie are the only two that I've seen from him. The writer here of Benjamin, this is his only credit so far. Our star of O'Toole has been in eight movies. Two of them have been in horror. The first one is Necrotronic, which I've heard of, but just haven't seen yet. And then this movie here. Now, he did appear in Hacksaw Ridge and Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales that I have seen. Now, that latter one isn't necessarily horror, but I do think it's kind of close in my opinion. Then the actress of Frasier, this is her feature film debut, and this, of course, makes it her only horror film. Now, it does look like she's going to a little bit more in the mainstream here with a movie called Outlaw King, which isn't in genre, but I did want to point out that it does have a great cast from what I saw. And then the other person I'll kind of delve into is the actress of Craig. She has three credits in acting. This is the only one that I've seen so far, and then this is the only horror movie on top of that. So to get into this movie here, we start off with a child by the name of Alia as she is fleeing into the night. They aren't speaking English, and we learn that this is happening in Finland. Those that are after her are stating that they're family and she can't get away. Now she tries to jump into the river in order to make her escape. It then takes us to a bank where in line we have Rex, who is portrayed by O'Toole. He's trying to make it to where he's going to be waited on by a young woman by the name of Maddie, who is Lawback. Things take a dark turn when this bank in Boise, Idaho gets robbed. Rex notices another customer has a gun, but when he tries to motion for her to use it, she refuses. This gun ends up in his hands. The movie has an interesting way of telling us, but Rex ends up taking down the robbers. A decision he makes though lands him in court, as well as eight years in prison. When he gets out, Rex is a celebrity. He cannot live a normal life, so he goes to his buddy from work when he did work at this bar, and this guy's name is Pete, who is portrayed by Joshua Brennan, to collect his things. What he is looking for though is his passport. He then reveals that his plan is to move to Finland and start over. This was decided by shooting a spitball at a map and it landed on this country. It is at the airport that he is seen by Carolyn Craig and her husband of Matthew Sutherland. They state that they are going to get him and that he's perfect for their son. A man does relay to this is what was said because they say this in Finnish, but Rex laughs it off. I should also point out here that Rex talks to himself. We see that through his conscience as being another version of him. Now, this is a lot of the interior monologue, but there are sometimes he actually is verbalizing this stuff out loud. Now, when Rex arrives in Finland, a taxi cuts in line to pick him up. The driver is Finister, and we see that he's working with this couple that were in the United States looking at him. Gas is leaked into the back of the taxi, and despite what Rex does, he's knocked out. When he does wake up, his arms are tied above his head, and that's not it. This seems to be a family that is behind taking him, and Alia, who is now portrayed by Frazier, is one of the members. She also has twin brothers of Gail and Gideon, who are both portrayed by Jeffrey, and then there's also Ali, who is a younger brother, portrayed by David Hill. 
While talking to his conscience, Rex has to find a way to get out of here before it is too late. We do see, though, that he has some military training and might actually be pretty dangerous here in getting away. He slowly starts to realize what his true purpose is here and how it involves another member of this family of Patti, who is portrayed by Caleb Inoke. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap for this movie. Is I think that gets you the basic idea without spoiling anything here. Where I want to start is that I wasn't necessarily sure what type of movie we were getting here. I knew the title. I knew briefly that what I saw on social media about people liking it and that it being a lot of fun. And, you know, that was really about it. I did know this movie went a bit wild, so I was intrigued to see where it was, you know, going to go and what I was in for. And, I mean, with a name like Bloody Hell, you kind of have some preconceived notions. And, you know, that's where I'm going to get into this. Now, where I want to start would be the movie, and I think it's well-written. We get so many reveals that are done without force-feeding them. For an example here, I was confused as to why Rex would be on trial. He helped thwart a bank robbery, and it is when we learn about, you know, something that happened during this, and then he also was considered to use excessive force because he has military training. The movie alludes to what happened, but makes you wait for that reveal, and it worked for me. That was something that happens when, you know he's taken and it makes sense as to why they have to level the playing field a bit and that will also take me to this family here that takes him what i love here is that they're actually just normal aside from the fact that they're kidnapping people they don't have any special training they're not super strong or anything like that the family is just able to lure in people and then take them unexpected they are also creepy i do have to say that alia doesn't like want to be like them now, she is interesting on top of that due to a story that she is reading to Ali and the implications that come from that. And it's kind of interesting as I saw a tagline for this movie about a fairy tale and that makes a whole lot of sense there. Something that I think I should point out here is that this is part comedy. Some of it comes from Rex talking to his conscience. I'll admit though, there were a few times that this had me laughing out loud and I was by myself watching this. That isn't to say that all the jokes land for me, but there are a few things that does you know take me out of the movie with those. Regardless, I still think this is more of my speed with comedy, and I thought it doesn't really necessarily detract from the other elements that we are getting in this movie as well. Now, since I've touched on the comedy, I think I'll go next to the acting. I liked our lead here of O'Toole. We established that he's a pretty badass character. There is something done here that levels the playing field, as I've said, to prevent him from going, you know, John Wick on them, and that works for me. And I even like the fact that... That is something that is being dubbed of him, and that is one of the things that gets said to him while he's at the airport. He also brings a level of comedy that I could appreciate as it's based in sarcasm. Frasier is solid as this sheltered woman. You feel bad for her, and I liked that what they do with the character there. She's also quite attractive. I think that Craig Sunderland and Jeffrey in both of his roles, as well as Finister, are all good as well. They bring such a creepiness to their different roles that is effective. And the last person I want to call out here would be Lullback. She has a smaller supporting role, but I think she helps with the overall story in my opinion. So the last thing I want to go into before I get into trivia will be the effects. Surprisingly, this movie doesn't have a lot of them, but it also doesn't necessarily need them either. That isn't to say that we don't get any of them at all though. The movie is strategic in showing what they can, doing it practical from what I could see, and if they can't do something, they hide it. I don't recall any CGI, so if there was, it was hidden, and it was well done in my book as well. So I will also give credit here to the cinematography, as they didn't necessarily need to use bad CGI, which can, you know, definitely hurt a movie for me. So I just have some bits of trivia here from the IMDb page, is that this is the first of a planned trilogy. The screenwriter came up with this while traveling and noticed a family of foreigners at the airport staring at him oddly while whispering in their native language. 
Naturally, he assumed they were planning to kidnap and eat him, so he began thinking of all the things he would do if he woke up in some dark basement. He wrote the outline for this film at the gate while waiting for the flight. Enowak, the character who plays Patty, was spotted by the crew walking down the street as they were doing a location scout. All of the actors playing Finnish natives are actually Australian and had to learn the language phonetically. The dashboard Huladal in the Helsinki taxi has an interesting thing that plays into everything. This was shot on the Gold Coast of Queensland, Australia. The actor of Jeffrey, who plays both twins, Gail and Gideon, came up with the distinct difference between the siblings on his own. Most notably, the lazy eye of Gideon, which is actually an ability of Jeffrey's and a stark contrast in each of their personalities. Gail being the strong leader type, while Gideon being the weaker follower. In the script, they were essentially interchangeable, so it's kind of good on him for that. The director, Sean Burns, loved the script but turned it down, saying that he needed more time to prep than was allotted. Brennan, who plays the character of Pete, also plays O'Toole's body double. Joshua would act as Rex, while Ben would act as the conscience and vice versa. The nasty outbreak of gastroenteritis infected much of the crew and cast during production, causing many temporaries like to be replaced at times. Luckily, the lead actors, director, and writer were unaffected. Originally wasn't going to be revealed until later in the film what exactly Rex did in the bank, but test audiences needed a reason to like Rex in order to engage with him, so a quick bank sequence was added in the film's opening. I think that's actually much stronger by doing it that way. Jai Courtney, Travis Fimmel, Brenton Thwaites, and Alex Russell will all turn on the role of Rex. This was written with the title of Blood of an Englishman due to the subtle tie back into Jack and the Beanstalk. Director Peter Cornwell, who did The Haunting in Connecticut, was originally slated to direct, but pulled out due to a scheduling conflict. This is the second time the actors Finister and Brennan worked with director Garrison. Finister acted in the lead in Coco Da, while Brennan was a supporting role in Prayer's War. This was also co-edited by Benjamin, who also edited both trailers for the film. While the family name is never mentioned, the cab license of the uncle says Arto Lakanen, the latter meaning he who takes big steps. Second Australian horror film titled Bloody Hell, the first was unreleased by Mick Meredith as a horror comedy. And then Marta Dusseldorp was considered for the role of the mother in this. So in conclusion here, I had a lot of fun with this movie. I heard people enjoying this as well, so I'm glad that I took their lead to see this. This is an interesting take on the slasher genre. We are getting to see a character we establish as being strong and having him taken against his will. And when I say slasher, I don't necessarily think this is traditional slasher, but we do get to see that this family has done this before having this character here. The acting is good in building these characters, which also helps move the story to bring some comedy to it as well. Not enough to hurt the tension though either, because I do tend to not enjoy horror comedies that much, unless they're done really well. The effects we get look good, and I had no issues there or with the cinematography. The other thing to say is that the soundtrack fit for what was needed. I would say that this is a good movie in my opinion, and one that I'm looking forward to seeing again before the year ends to see what I might have missed here. So my rating for Bloody Hell is going to be 8 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section. I don't really feel like it's warranted or anything that I need to kind of delve deeper into. But what I am going to do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Sorry, lady, this is closing time. Oh, just a few 
few minutes longer. That's my orders. I can't let anyone stay after six o'clock. Oh. Well, there are some more people coming now. Oh, that's different. That's Mrs. Endicott. Her family owned all this land before the company did. She's got special privileges. Oh. Well, what are you hanging back for? I don't want to see dead people. What did I ever do that heaven should give me an idiot for a son? You're going to put those flowers on your father's tomb if I have to drag you there. Don't you see he's frightened, Roberts? I will not be disobeyed. Come. too much. I've been more of a mother twin than you have. Philip, nature treated you unkindly, but your family were splendid men and women. Can't you make an effort, a great effort, to get some of their strength? Oh, I am strong. Look. <laughs> that kind of strength is no good. He does his best. It's not his fault. It's mine, I suppose. Yes. You're a mean, selfish old woman. You're like all the Endicotts. Not one of them has ever cared for anyone else. And Philip is the result. You are not here to put flowers on a grave. I know what you are here for. This. Afraid you'll be buried alive. And you want to be sure your precious signal works. I won't be buried alive. Not I. That happened to Uncle Morton, and we found him turned over in his grave. That's why I had this built. I want my casket left open. It must not be sealed. I know what I'm doing. I know what I... 
Oh. Why do you excite me? You know I have a weak heart. And at any moment, at any moment, I... Oh. Oh. I'm so afraid of being buried alive without anyone knowing it. You won't let that happen, will you? No, I won't. You won't forget. No, I won't forget. And for my second feature review is going to be Murder by the Clock from 1931. This is directed by Edward Sloman. This is from the play by Charles Beanhan, who also wrote the screenplay but is uncredited. The story is from Rufus King, and then the adaptation is from Henry Myers. This stars William Stage Boyd, Lillian Toshman, and Irving Pitchell, while also featuring Regis Toomey, Sally O'Neill, Blanche Fredici, Walter McGrail, Lester Vale, Martha Maddox, Frank Sheridan, Guy Oliver, and Frederick Sullivan. This is a horror mystery film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a... 3.0 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being an elderly woman installs a horn in her crypt in case she is buried alive. Now this is another movie that I had never heard of until it popped up on a list of horror movies from 1931. I decided on this for my Odyssey Through the Ones at some point, and I am now, you know, giving it a viewing for that. Now I did read the synopsis, but aside from that, I came into this one pretty blind. So the director of Slowman has directed 30 films total. Of them, this is the only one that I've seen and the only one in the horror genre as well. Then our writer of King has six writing credits. He has two in the horror genre. And the second one came close to a decade after this called The Hidden Hand. I've never seen that one, making this the only one that I've seen from him. Then Beanham has four writing credits. Much like the director, this is the only horror film and the only one that I've seen. Then our star of Boyd has 26 movies. Again, the only horror film that he has done and the only movie that I've seen him in. Toshman has been in 45 films. Now, she was in The Cat Creeps from the year before in 1930, which I believe is a lost film. As I was unable to find it last year when I was doing you know, my, my journey through the aughts. And then much like her co-star, this is the only movie that I've ever seen her in. Then there's Pitchell. He has 63 acting credits. He has been in three horror movies. This is the first, and he was also in Dracula's Daughter, which I have seen. And then the last one was in 1939 with Torture Ship, which is one that I have yet to see at this time. We start this off in a cemetery where the caretaker is informing a family that they're closing up and have to go. They inquire to why this Julia Endicott, who is Fredici, and her son, Philip, who is Pitchell, and then her sister of Miss Roberts, who is Maddox, are allowed to enter. They have special permission due to Julia's late husband owning the land before it was sold. The reason they're there to pay their respects to Julia's late husband and Philip's father. Miss Roberts points out that the real reason is a check to make sure the horn connected to her tomb is still working, much like the synopsis stated. I should also point out here, Julia is hard on her son and he's a bit mentally slow as well. They return home where they also get to meet their new maid of Jane, who is O'Neill. As well as we also get to meet a beat cop that walks around the neighborhood of Officer Cassidy, who is Toomey. Now, these two provide some levity to this movie. Now, Jane informs Julia that her nephew of Herbert, who is McGrail, is coming over. Julia isn't thrilled to hear this, especially if his wife is coming with him. She knows that Laura, who is Toshman, is only with him for her money. Before he arrives, we see an odd scene with Philip as he wants to kill 
When Juliet inquires more, Philip doesn't want to be a soldier, but a murderer. She realizes that she cannot leave her fortune to him. She calls for an attorney to make a change to her will, making Herbert the sole beneficiary. The problem here is that he is an alcoholic, so she's a little bit leery there, but she would rather give it to him than the psycho that her son is, or at least that's what she thinks. And then we also get to know a bit more about Herbert's wife. She is having an affair with Thomas Hollander, who is Vale. He's a local sculptor who has been giving her money. Herbert doesn't make enough for the lifestyle that she wants to live. Herbert informs his wife of the change to the will, and she subtly convinces him to kill his aunt. She won't admit it, but men fall victim to her looks. Now, with the deed done, Philip ends up becoming the prime suspect. He has one of the best motives for killing her, but Lieutenant Falcor, who is Boyd, believes that Herbert has a better one. This causes him to become paranoid. Laura seems to be in control and is planning steps down the line. Lieutenant Falcor, though, doesn't trust her and is out to prove that she is behind everything. Now, that is where I'm going to leave my recap, as I want to start to get into this that this movie has an interesting premise especially for 1931 this is still pretty early into the murder mysteries but what i like here is that we're getting a slightly different take on it this also seems to be leaning into the film noir category since laura is a femme fatale and really the mastermind of everything here there's even a bit of flirting going on between the detective and her as well but he is still resisting it as he doesn't trust her now this is something I want to delve into a bit more as well. Laura really uses her sexuality as a weapon to convince Herbert, Tom, and even to an extent Philip of things that, that she wants them to do. The latter I feel bad for as he's mentally slow and really buys into what people say about him. She uses all of these men at different times to get what she wants and then try to get away with it as well. Now Lieutenant Falcor should fall a bit into this. She does try to work her charm on him, but no matter what she does, he is sticking to his guns. Philip is an interesting character in this as well. We see in the beginning that he's scared to go to the cemetery. Julia is mean to him about this, while really the only one who truly cares about him is Miss Roberts. Philip is a psychopath to an extent though. He isn't all there mentally, and he probably needs to be in a hospital that can better help him. I believe this upbringing probably didn't help in this case either. Julia is hard on him, and it is a negative effect there as well. There is something interesting from a demonstration that he did that I didn't initially pick up on that plays back into the explanation in the end, and it's really Lieutenant Falcor that is the one who points it out. Then really the last thing I want to point out here would be is from the synopsis. The horn in the tomb is interesting. I've heard of this idea with a bell back when science wasn't great and sometimes people were buried alive. The movie really points out how important this horn is, but to be honest, it really isn't as impactful to the story as I thought. I guess it really is a bit of a swerve in this respect, but I was thinking back to it constantly and it doesn't seem as important as they make it out to be. And I just think this is a little bit bad on the writing for, you know, making it seem this important while also it's not being that way at all. Now, moving away from the story, I want to take this to the acting. No one really blew me away, but I think that the acting is solid enough to make the story work. Boyd is good as this detective. I like that he's a bit early into film noir, but he's not blinded by the femme fatale. He wants the truth, and I like how determined he is. Tashman is attractive enough to fit her role. I also like her portrayal. When you hear her, you'd think that she is innocent, but see how evil-minded she is. Pitchell is good at playing this character that is slow but strong. He fit there well. McGrail is fine along with Vale as men who get sucked into Laura's lies. And I thought that Frederici plays this meaner older woman to a T. Now Toomey and O'Neill bring a bit of comedy while Maddox as well as the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Then really the last thing to point out here 
would be we don't get a lot in the way of effects it is early cinema so it's also not really that type of movie so it doesn't really necessarily need them the cinematography is much of the same it doesn't stand out but it is shot well enough the copy i was watching wasn't great so there is that as well then finally i would say that the soundtrack is also fine but i did want to comment on the sound design the horn is used in an effective way it doesn't really amount to much in my opinion, but it is effective when you hear it and you know exactly what that sound is when it is, you know, being sounded. So then before I close this out here, I do have two pieces of trivia that I wanted to share that are both very short. This is over 700 Paramount Productions filmed between 29 and 49, which were sold to MCA Universal in 58 for television distribution and have been owned and controlled by Universal ever since. And then Lanita Lane, this is her first feature film performance, although it is an uncredited role, so it's not necessarily what they give credit to her for. Now, in conclusion here, I think this is an interesting early murder mystery. I'm surprised to see that this is listed as horror, but I think the possibility of being buried alive and what the movie makes us believe that Philip is capable of makes sense. There is greed and murder as well, and I think that the concept of the movie is really interesting, especially for 31. The acting really does help to bring these characters to life. The sound design of the horn is effective, and I'd say that the cinematography, effects, and soundtrack fit for what was needed. I would say this is an above-average movie, and one that I think should be seen a bit more. So my rating here for Murder by the Clock is going to be a 7 out of 10. If you couldn't tell, there's not a whole lot more I really would delve into, so I'm not going to do a spoiler section. But what I am going to do, though, is get you over to a musical break before I close out the show. Deep in me 
like to welcome you back one last time so just to close everything out here for episode number 73 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast if you'd like to get in touch with me you can send me an email at journey with a cinephile at gmail.com anything that you send there if you want me to read it on the show just let me know or if you just want to send me any sort of feedback that would be greatly appreciated if you'd like to read any of my reviews that are written from anything on this episode or any of the past ones that's reviews of the dead and that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And then the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile. And I will have all of the links in the show notes there to make it better and easier for you as well. I would ask the last thing would be is that if you could go ahead and rate and review on whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, just so that way I'm getting out there to more listeners. I can also figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like. So what I'm actually thinking for the next episode is that on the 31st is Kong versus Godzilla is coming out, and I'm a huge fan of the Godzilla film, so I believe I'm going to make that one of the featured reviews. I'm going to try to see if I can see it in the theaters, but if not, I will at least watch it on HBO Max because I do have access there. And then the one I'm going to pair it up with, I'm between a couple different movies here, but I do think the one from 1931, because this is going to be another Odyssey Through the Ones episode, is that I think I'm going to pair it up with King of the Wild. Now, like I said, they're not very similar, but it's the one that I think makes the most sense, at least for title-wise, for these two to be kind of paired up together. So I think that's really all I needed to get you up to speed with. I don't want to take up any more of your time. So what I will say is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it. Have a great time. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 